Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 85, C.S. Lewis's The Funeral of a Great Myth, or Evolution and Hegelian Optimism. In his essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth, C.S. Lewis says, I come to bury the great myth of the 19th and early 20th century, which is implicit in nearly every modern article of politics, sociology, and ethics. I call it a myth because it is, as I have said, the imaginative and not the logical result of what is vaguely called modern science. Lewis continues, The central idea of the myth is what its believers would call evolution. I do not mean that the doctrine of evolution as held by practicing biologists is a myth. It may be shown by later biologists to be a less than satisfactory hypothesis than was hoped 50 years ago, but that does not amount to being a myth. It is a genuine scientific hypothesis. But we must distinguish between evolution as a biological theorem and popular evolutionism, which is certainly a myth. End quote. It is probably worth commenting here that Lewis, by all accounts, accepted the evolutionary paradigm of biology, as do I, which does not mean it is true, but that it, quote, covers more of the facts than any other hypothesis at present on the market, and is therefore to be accepted unless, or until, some new supposal can be shown to cover still more facts with even fewer assumptions. End quote. This is science. It is the belief in, or acceptance of, a picture of reality that we seek to map ever more finely and accurately to reality itself. Reality, science believes, must be allowed to correct our beliefs about it. The dichotomy between science as a disciplined method of investigation of the natural world and science in the popular mind, or as socially conceived, looms large in this essay. Later, Lewis says, quote, If science has not met the imaginative need of its social domain, science would not have been so popular. But probably every age gets, within certain limits, the science it desires. End quote. I am fully aware that this claim cuts both ways, so Christians, check your glee. But I agree with it. We see clearly in today's world the subversion of science by politics, ideology, and popular pressure on several different fronts. So, if biological evolution is not the myth, what is? Quote, in the science, evolution is a theory about changes. In the myth, it is a fact about improvements. In the popular mind, the word evolution conjures up a picture of things moving onwards and upwards, and of nothing else whatsoever. Having first turned what was a theory of change into a theory of improvement, it then makes this a cosmic theory. Not merely terrestrial organisms, but everything is moving upwards and onwards. 
For in the myth, evolution is the formula of all existence. To those brought up on the myth, nothing seems more normal, more natural, more plausible than that chaos should turn into order, death into life, ignorance into knowledge. And with this, we reach the full-blown myth. It is one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which have ever been imagined. End quote. Thus, Lewis's myth of evolution is what we called Hegelian optimism in our series on Hegel. It is the false utopianism of Marx and all of today's woke and critical theory ideologies. It is the idea that change is the fundamental underlying metaphysical reality and that, left to itself, it is always improving, moving, as he says here, onwards and upwards. He quotes these lines from Keats's Hyperion, written 40 years before Darwin's theory and well displaying this belief. So on our heels a fresh perfection treads, a power more strong in beauty, born of us, and fated to excel us as we pass in glory that old darkness. Lewis's first evidence for the myth parallels a conclusion I first drew in graduate school when studying the works of Hegel. Sorry, folks, here we go again. It is that the evolutionary idea, the myth, was already alive and well before the science. Science apparently borrowed from the myth, and not the other way around. The early 19th century was rife with the myth, long before the origin of species in 1859. Lewis traces it in literature. But for me it became clear in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, 50 years before the origin of species, and the Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences, 40 years before origin. For Hegel's philosophy essentially is the myth about which we are speaking here. That it is, is made plain when Lewis says, quote, In the myth, everything is becoming everything else. In fact, everything is everything else at an earlier or later stage of development, the later stages being always the better. In other words, Reality is an ever-evolving process, moving perpetually onwards and upwards. The myth is absolute idealism itself. And Lewis here makes for me the case I have been trying to make for the last three years of our podcast, that we have progressively, over the last two centuries, bought into an ideology that has invaded our very thinking processes and eroded the foundations on which two millennia of real progress stand. Hegel instantiates reality as spirit, reason itself evolving. While most believers in the Hegelian myth today would scoff at such a metaphysical notion of reason instantiated in nature, at least absolute idealism doesn't undercut its own foundations. Like theism, Hegel allows that all the order and structure of the world including human reason, finds its order in rationality itself. Most, or many, depending on how we count them, of today's believers in the myth reject both transcendent reason, theism, 
and imminent reason, Hegel, in favor of a thoroughgoing materialism, an utterly non-rational reality. Quote, to reach the positions held by the real scientists, which are then taken over by the myth, you must, in fact, treat reason as an absolute. But at the same time, the myth asks me to believe that reason is simply the unforeseen and unintended byproduct of a mindless process at one stage of its endless and aimless becoming. The content of the myth thus knocks from under me the only ground on which I could possibly believe the myth to be true. If my own mind is a product of the irrational, if what seem my clearest reasonings are only the way in which a creature conditioned as I am is bound to feel, how shall I trust my mind when it tells me about evolution? The fact that some people of scientific education cannot by any effort be taught to see the difficulty confirms one's suspicion that we here touch a radical disease in their whole style of thought. End quote. Yes, and that style of thought is the Hegelian dialectic, which thrives on relativism, contradiction, self-deceptive strategies, and ends justify the means ethics, and is, in fact, the method of reasoning in which most of us were brought up. Quote, but the man who does see it is compelled to reject as mythical the cosmology in which most of us were brought up, that it has embedded in it many true particulars, I do not doubt. But in its entirety, it simply will not do. Whatever the real universe may turn out to be like, it can't be like that. End quote. As an atheist, I came kicking and screaming to see this problem, and to agree with Lewis's conclusion here long before I read the essay. Like all good lies, quote, it has embedded in it many true particulars, end quote. But taking the whole and not the part, it simply will not do. In my discussion with David Smalley, we ran into this problem repeatedly. If I remember correctly, it was toward the end of our discussion when he exasperatedly asked me why I continually had to keep seeking to find the origin of things. For him, for example, human ethics were sufficiently explained by animal sympathy, its evolutionary precursor. I don't necessarily reject that animal sympathy may have been a building block of human ethics. But we are still left with the question of where the proto-rational sympathy in animals comes from if all we have to build on is an irrational material reality. Granted, once the mechanisms are in place, we can envision all sorts of permutations of the matter and order present in them. But if it is present in them, it either was already eternally present itself, or it was placed in them from outside. And both these options demand an order and structure, a reason, independent of its developments, which can then later find itself most fully instantiated in the human being. If we find rationality, order, and structure in our universe, 
it is because it is there. From whence, then, comes rationality in an unconscious and irrational universe? The only answer forthcoming is that of Marx. Shut up and sit down, and stop asking such foolish questions. If it were only a matter of diseased thought, we might shrug our shoulders and pity those infected. But thought always has practical consequences. Quote, Modern politics would be impossible without the myth, continues Lewis, because the myth allows us to ignore the actual evidence of history, concentrating our attention on only those parts of it amenable to our given narrative. For if we examined history itself, quote, it would be impossible not to see that any given change in society is at least as likely to destroy the liberties and amenities we already have as to add new ones, that the danger of slipping back is at least as great as the chance of getting on, that a prudent society must spend at least as much energy on conserving what it has as on improvement. A clear knowledge of these truisms would be fatal both to the political left and to the political right of modern times. The myth obscures that knowledge, because it takes over from rational thought only what it finds convenient. End quote. If you would like to understand Lewis's myth of evolution, I further recommend our series on Hegel. As faithful listeners to our podcast know, I am certain of very little in this life, though my search for truth remains as vibrant today as ever. Of one thing, though, I am certain. C.S. Lewis was wrong on the death announcement for this great myth. It is alive and prospering in our contemporary world, some sixty years after Lewis's death, and, I think, healthier than ever. Although the quotation from Mark Twain may be apocryphal, I think we can fairly place it in the mouth of Lewis's great myth. The rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.